Welcome to the AGA Podcast, where we bring you small talk on big topics from within the world of gastroenterology. Thanks for being with us. Now let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the AGA Podcast, small talk, big topics. I'm your host, Matthew Whitson, and today I'm with Nina Nandy. Hi, Dr. Nandy. How are you? Hi, Matthew. Hi, everybody out there. We have a great podcast for you today. Today, we are joined by Dr. Cheryl File, who is a clinical professor in medicine and gastroenterologist at The Ohio State University's Wexner Medical Center. She is a big name in medical education, and also she runs the simulation lab over at The Ohio State University. She's won the Best Doctors in America Award, a Master Teacher Award, and the Leonard Tao Humanism in Medicine Award. She's also going to be mortified that you just listed all of her accolades before we talk to her, but that's okay. We should do her justice because, as you and I both know, Cheryl File is absolutely amazing. Full disclosure, she serves as a, a mentor to me in the world of medical education, and honestly, she was one of the first people that came to my mind as to who we could get on this podcast, and I was just thrilled that she said yes. So, in her conversation with her today, what are you excited to learn? What do you want to hear oh, from her? This is a topic that I'm very interested in, um, in medical education. And I'm really interested in her journey, how she decided to choose a career in medical education. I feel that in GI, there's so many paths you can go down, research, you know, private practice, you can do advanced endoscopy. How did she pick education with so many options out there? Yeah, no, I'm not sure what she's going to tell you. I think I think she's going to tell you it's a calling for her, but she is... It'll be interesting to see what she's done over her career. She's been a program director. She's been director of the simulation study. She's been president of the AGA Academy yeah. of Educators. So she's done some local stuff, some national stuff. It should be a good discussion. I'm interested to see who her mentors were and who were her guiding lights along the way. Absolutely. So without further ado, let's get into it. This is our conversation with Dr. Cheryl File. So, Dr. File, if you don't mind, I was wondering if you could tell all of us how you actually got into a career in medical education. Well, hi, Nina and Matt. It is so nice to join you tonight. I have to say, when I think about my career as an educator, I think there was a bit of serendipity, and I don't think it was very um, intentional at the outset. I was a gastroenterology fellow at Case Western in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, finished my fellowship or was or was nearing completion of my fellowship and did the usual interviewing at, at the various practices and had, you know, a whole list of practices on, on my plate as I was trying to consider what my, you know, initial career uh, for I would be. And nothing really felt exactly right. And then my chief at the time actually called me in and uh, said, hey, would you ever consider staying here? And uh, I kind of paused for a minute. And I said, well, what would I do? And he said, well, what do you want to do? And I had to, you know, pause myself again and say, like, gosh, I'd really never done the soul searching to really think about it. And so he said, you know, I've observed that when you are teaching the students, you really seem to come into your own and you really enjoy it. And I said, you know, frankly, I do. But I never really envisioned that you could sort of make a career of educating and being a, a clinical gastroenterologist. So that was my start. And uh, of course, like many of us who educate, you know, once you're in, you're in. And uh, my chief was right. He had the insight that I didn't have. And I've um, really in- enjoyed having part of my professional identity be an educator ever since. So 
just for context for the audience, what is your title now? And like, what roles do you have at this time? Because as we kind of explore your journey, I'm, I kind of want them to have the end point now. Yeah. So I'm a, a professor of clinical medicine. I still consider myself a gastroenterologist. I still wear, you know, the clinical hat of gastroenterologist. And, uh, and I am the medical director of the Clinical Simulation Center, which is a center that serves uh, the, the medical center and the College of Medicine and the other health science colleges. And then I do other, um, I have other roles at the College of Medicine, primarily at the student level. I was previously a gastroenterology fellowship program director for 10 years, and that was also a role that I enjoyed. But, um, but th- those are my current roles. That's so what you're saying is the offshoot conversation with your chief and then you taking it and running with it has led to this extensive career within education. Yeah, I mean, it really has. And I think that that's I mean, I think sometimes our our attendings and our teachers and so forth, sometimes our parents, they have um, a a certain insight that um, maybe we're not seeing ourselves and can recognize a spark or something and kind of put that out there. And yeah, that was something that I think I hadn't realized was really something that I wanted to do. So yeah, and I've enjoyed being an educator ever since. Besides your chief, did you have other mentors and teachers along the way who helped shape and guide your career, people that you could rely on? Oh my goodness. I think that, you know, like too numerous to count, right? Um, (laughs) TNTC. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think what drew me to medicine actually was uh, one of my, one of my first attendings or what drew me to GI was one of my first attendings who um, was just out of his uh, fellowship at Hopkins. And he was a little dynamo and just loved endoscopy, um, loved acuity and GI, um, found every single thing exciting and interesting and novel. And I thought, gosh, I want to be him. I mean, this is just like, this is so cool. Uh, and so I think that was a very um, you know, pivotal role model, if you will. And he loved trainees. And I think that, you know, many of us would say, you guys probably say the same thing, that those teachers that validate the students that take an interest in students, learners of any sort, right, as a matter of an intern, resident, fellow, that sort of basically care, um, I think are the ones that, um, you know, we draw most energy from. So, and I've had many, many of those. Absolutely. So now I'm sure about hundreds of your mentees would say the same thing about you, but when, when in your career, do you think kind of the light bulb went off or, or the switch went on and you said, oh, I could do this as part of my career or as a huge part of my career? I think that it was something that sort of happened gradually. As I stayed in academics, I realized that, you know, my hat wasn't going to be the research hat. And I really embraced certainly clinical medicine, but also the teaching aspect. And then beyond that, kind of the zoom up of the like uh, organization of education. And so I think I you know, I had some opportunities and I decided to, um, like the opposite of the Nike commercial, just say yes, <laughs> kind of go with it, see how it went. Um, and I enjoyed it. I realized I could sort of get out of my own shop, so to speak, and, you know, do something in the doctoring course, which was the course that um, I led for a time, or, you know, do something with student coaching or, you know, whatever manner of other things are sort of like outside of my own shop. And I realized that there's a whole additional aspect of medical education that is not within our own, you know, our own specialty. And it's the two aren't mutually exclusive. So that actually kind of 
leads us into like one of the other things we wanted to talk about with you is that, you know, as a gastroenterologist, I think a lot of us view education as a, I will teach this trainee how to scope. Mm-hmm. I will teach them about diverticulosis or achalasia or whatever. So could you kind of walk us through maybe some of the areas in medical education careers that we may not accept, like um, we as a larger community may not expect or see as like the first line and area to explore within education? Sure. So I do think that like teaching within our own field is sort of the natural first step um, because there are some people that just really, really enjoy that, right? Really relish it, really enjoy the, you know, when the light bulb comes on for a learner, right? That's just such a, you know, an invigorating moment for us all. So I think that that's the first place to start. And then I think that there are other opportunities. Now, it sort of used to be more bucketed. So it was either like resident fellow education or student education. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of crossover now. On the student education side, some of the early sort of rungs of the ladder might be things like participating as a teacher in a course that might be a doctoring course or a... um, or a skills-based course, clinical skills course, or something that sort of takes you out of your field a bit and lets you try that type of teaching. And then there are other leadership positions that come along. And um, I think you have to be courageous. If something seems to be of interest, remember that there are certainly uh, many individuals who are program directors of internal medicine residency programs, other areas of leadership that are not within GI, but yet they start as a gastroenterologist. And you can actually sort of rise in academic medicine to, I can name, you know, senior associate dean, uh, program director of medicine, even department chair of internal medicine. So I can name a lot of individuals who actually are gastroenterologists, but who have done, you know, really great and amazing things in education. But many of them, I think, started started small. And then there's a whole uh, other area of organizations and associations and meetings, networking and so forth that are not specially related, but are within the area of education and a huge crossover between the two. So within uh, at uh, the last the last in-person DDW, which seems so long ago now. Yeah. So, Matt, you you know very well, there is a whole section for education, right? I do. I do know this very well. Full disclosure, as you and I have served on uh, one of these committees for the AGA Academy of Educators. I feel like that's a disclosure we're supposed to make. Like that should be our opening slide deck slide. <laughs> so, but yeah, no, I mean, last DDW in, I guess that was 2019. I mean, it was Danielle Marino and Bridget Shaw were leading uh, tours of all the medical education studies. There was really a nice community that uh, they were helping to build that it feels inclusive, I guess. Absolutely. And the, there are there's a, a separate poster section actually for education, and I think the Academy of Educators is another uh, really nice opportunity within our field because there's actually a sort of a um, not a C grant but an, uh, an early grant opportunity for individuals who are wanting to study something that is education related. So the Academy of Educators has grants each year and a plenary session, and it's wonderful networking. Uh, most people in education are really nice. Not everybody, but most of the time. You're not speaking about you or I, correct? Right, 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 right. right. Nina, you can attest to this. We're both okay? You're both great. Fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> most of the time, it's a very collegial group. 
Are these something that early career individuals can apply for? People during in fellowship, can they apply for an AGA Academy of Educators grant? Yes, absolutely. Yes, they can. Mm -hmm. And early career. And I think that it's really well suited. And to be honest, education research doesn't usually cost a lot of money. There's sometimes some some supplies or some statistical support, but you know, for the most part, the it is the labor which is ours, and that is um, not something that is you know a, a direct cost. So it doesn't cost a lot of money. The grants aren't for a lot of money, but I think it's um, incredibly like energizing to receive one of these, and then it comes with actually an opportunity to present at DDW. Uh, we're recreating that um, in a virtual way now. It's also a very important opportunity for others to hear about what you're doing and so forth. So I think it's a good start. So can I ask, can we can we pull on that thread for a second where, you know, when you think about thought leaders in a field like IBD, you might think of like Sanborn or Bruce Sands or, or someone that it's is doing the exactly, you're doing these tons of studies and their pioneering research. Do you think of uh, public floor disorder, Satish Rao immediately comes to mind. Where do you see the role of scholarship within medical education? Because I, I feel like that's something that does sometimes get lost and it's worth really maybe digging in an extra step to talk about that. I think that's really important. So if you want to sort of, you know, hold yourself out as a medical educator, um, especially, you know, in an academic environment, it's, scholarship is really important, but it is not it doesn't have to be separate from your um, your clinical work. Actually, you can find opportunities to intertwine teaching and education with what you're doing every day. But I think that it is really important to remember there's you know there's an obligation to to create scholarly work to disseminate what you're doing, and that's every bit as important in education as it is in any other like clinical niche. I suppose along the same lines, um, how does the role of mentorship fall into that category? How do you balance education with scholarship and then mentorship? Yeah, so sometimes they can be very closely linked. So I have trainees or early faculty members who will come and want to discuss an idea, bounce an idea off me, um, ask for enlist my um, help and support in, in moving a project forward. And so sometimes mentorship and scholarship can be very closely intertwined. Other times they're just mentorship for mentorship. And that's, you know, perfectly exciting as well. So in education, Cheryl, where do you view potential mentors from? You, you, may, you, you mentioned earlier that there's a lot of crosstalk between residency and medical school, probably within different fields within medicine, whether it's internal medicine or GI or another subspecialty. I would imagine that also extends to other programs. Yeah. Yeah. So I realized um, when I um, was putting together my promotion packet, I realized that my external letters weren't all going to come from gastroenterologists. Um, they were going to come from other educators that might be in different fields because they knew best of some of the aspects of what I did. And some, some things, of course, uh, you know, some of the letters, of course, would come from uh, my you know, fellow gastroenterologists who are in education. But but I think that you're it's really amazing because your your my mentors have completely expanded. I mean, certainly I have wonderful, you know, mentors and role models um, within within GI and I try to and, and peers and and certainly others that I am trying to, you know, do the same for who are uh, my junior, right? 
But I also will say that I have um, had, I've been so, so fortunate to have many, you know, mentors and role models, you know, folks who have supported me and advocated for my career who are in completely different fields. And I think, you know, one thing is when you attend, and gosh, I certainly hope we can attend these in person again, but whether it's virtually or in person, just taking that extra effort to make those connections. And you have to be a little courageous and um, you might be an introvert with a capital I. I think that I probably am a native introvert, but you just have to go up and, and you know, meet folks. And, you know, I always say, what's the, the worst thing that can happen? Well, they can like, you know, give you the cold shoulder and then you won't have made the acquaintance. And uh, okay. And if you didn't uh, go out and try to meet them and so forth, you would also have not made right. your acquaintance. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I was new to a board and I uh, was sitting around the table and I like kind of snuck in there and I looked around for the like least of the most unassuming, least threatening person I could <laughs> be around the table. And I like timidly asked if I could sit next to this woman who had a very kind look on her face. And um, she was very gracious. And I like swiveled my chair up and and I thought I would just try to stay invisible and like not make any big mistakes during this meeting. And um, I sort of started to chat with a woman next to me and started a conversation. She was quite nice. And as the meeting unfolded, I realized that she was the incoming president of the board. Oh, wow. <laughs> Subsequently, um, she you know, received the Flexor Award, one of the highest awards in, in, in medicine. And um, she is still a dear friend to this day. She is now retired, but I still keep up with her. But she was an amazing supporter for me, amazing advocate. And I just kind of, you know, it was because she looked fairly, you know, non-threatening. But I think, you know, another woman I met, I literally, uh, is a woman who, who's actually, she's an ophthalmologist at Penn, but she, we were wearing the same jacket, like the same suit jacket at a national meeting, an education meeting. And I, you know, walked up to her and, and, um, you know, just struck up a conversation because we happen to be wearing the same, the same outfit. And uh, as it turns out, she's, you know, still a, a friend, a colleague, someone who I have, um, you know, kept in touch with and continue to keep in touch with to this day. She's been a wonderful source of advice and support. You know, she is much my senior in terms of stature and rank. But, but again, it was just by literally walking up and being brave enough to, and, and sometimes it's not so incidental. Sometimes it's because you're brave enough to say, hey, I love your research. Can I help you with that? You know, what can I bring to the party? Not how can you help me? Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's always good to have an attitude of what can I bring to the party? You know, um, what can I do? Because there are things, even if you don't think there are, you might just have more time than they have, or you might, you know, have, have a, you know, a willingness to just jump in and roll up your sleeves and be part of a, you know, a project. So there's always something you can bring to the party. That's always a really good way to approach things. It's interesting because you've mentioned bravery twice now in our conversation. Uh, once when you talked about jumps in leadership or taking on a new role, maybe outside your comfort zone in your program or in your institution. And then you talked about it in terms of networking. So as a mentor, I know you're still a mentee and a collaborator, but as a mentor, how do you instill that bravery in your mentees or the people you're advocating for? So sometimes if I identify a a talent, I can certainly be their source of encouragement or support as they're contemplating trying for a new position, um, you know, going for a new a new role. Sometimes I can open doors for them as well by advocating, suggesting their name, those kinds of things. And then I think sometimes I share my own story. And I can certainly tell you that 
I have not gotten everything I've applied for. And I always tell you know, my mentees that if you, and this is not my own quote, I can't remember, I don't know who to attribute this to, but if you uh, get everything you apply for, that means you are not reaching high enough. And so you really have to like kind of approach it with that mindset. I mean, and not just willy-nilly go after anything, but if you feel you're interested in something or bringing some qualifications to the table, you know, if you don't reach at times, then you know, you're not going to have the opportunities. So I think you have to build a little bit of um, a little bit of an alligator skin <laughs> and and recognize that sometimes when you're turned down for a position, it may have to do with many things other than what you're bringing to the to the role. It may relate to, you know, m- many other things that, that they're seeking. So was there a leap in your career that was the most nerve wracking jump that you had to make? And if so, what was the push that made you take that chance? I suppose there were a couple. One, when I became the fellowship program director, because I didn't feel that I knew that I had a whole lot of knowledge of the ACGME, sort of the whole, all of the regulations that govern fellowship and residency training. And so I felt like I had a lot to learn. It wasn't a role that I was really seeking. It was a role that I was asked to um, assume. And so it was part um, part interest, part like intrigue, and part um, citizenship. You know, I felt that it was something that I needed to do because I was the uh, best positioned person to do it at that time. And then, so that was a leap and I thoroughly enjoyed it for sure. And it's not easy work, <laughs> but, but you remember that. So I think that was a leap. And then I think the other the other leap uh, was simulation because that was really so far afield from what I was accustomed to doing. But the the backstory on that was, I think I've told Matt this actually, the backstory on that was I was the fellowship program director. And at that time, really, we were literally doing almost all the cases were conscious sedation or moderate sedation. Mm-hmm. And we would hand the fellow the scope or the patient that was, you know, under conscious sedation, and that would be the fellows, you know, entree into learning how to handle the scope and 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 how to begin their endoscopic learning. And I just kind of think there has to be a better way. There has to be a pre, you know, endoscopy opportunity. And and I remember seeing um, learning about simulators. And at that time, really, I think they still have a limited a uh, role, but at that time they probably had even more limited role. But be that as it may there was a GI bronchoscopy simulator kind of combo. And I really wanted to obtain that for the benefit of our fellows. But unfortunately, it was really high priced. Mm-hmm. And I talked to the surgeons and I talked to um, actually pulmonary anesthesiology, GI. There was no way in the world that I could cobble together enough resources to purchase the simulator for the benefit of our fellows. And then Ohio State was building a simulation center. And I raised, you know, raised my hand virtually and stood in line virtually and said, you know, I really want, I want to put in a request for this simulator. And it was the, it was well received. It was the first non-mannequin simulator that was purchased. And I was, I wasn't so enamored with the simulator itself, but I was hooked on the concept of this aspect of education. And so, and I think that there are many other, uh, you know, reasons why I continue to be involved in the area now. Um, the collaboration, the interprofessional aspects and so forth. But that was that was why I took that leap. And I have to say that was a big leap because I really was not um, very knowledgeable about simulation when I first entered the field. 
So, Cheryl, as we move on to kind of one of our other big thematic things we wanted to talk to you about. So, one of our goals of this podcast is to really talk to people that are earlier in their careers, like associate professors, assistant professors, and then also trainees and even residents and students. So, if they have the inkling that medical education is something they want to explore, do you have first steps that they can follow or who could they reach out into their institution? Yeah, I would say to look to the people that are doing education first. So, you know, look to the folks that are within your area that are doing education. Maybe it's the person who's running the student GI teaching block, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, They almost always are eager to have participants in terms of uh, leaders for small groups or a micro lecture you know, the person who's leading the GI education also has their sort of their finger in the pot, so to speak, of the like clinical education, right? They're leading the the clinical education of the students and residents who rotate through, and they're almost always interested in having help. And so I say, you know, it's like anything, try it on. Like, you know, you don't know if, um, you know, you want to do anything until you sort of put the cloak on and see if it feels right to you. So I think that's the first step. And I think that that is an that's a pretty easy avenue is to look to the people that are doing, that are leading the, the the local education and see what involvement you might have. So for those people that are working in smaller institutions where they may only have a handful of core faculty, you know, you mentioned networking outside of your institution. I know you've get tons of emails from potential mentees. How can people reach out to people they want to collaborate or kind of, potential mentors? Like, how can they do that? Should they feel comfortable just cold calling you guys? So what I think works the best is if you, if you read something that you think is really exciting, you know, maybe somebody who's, you know, done something in education, taught in a new way, found, you know, evaluated an endoscopic training in a new way, whatever, you read something, you can almost always find the email address of the author, authors, and just drop a note and say, hey, saw this, you know, very interesting and make that first connection. It may go nowhere, but it might also be the start of a connection. And then if you have an in-person meeting, you know, I've had folks um, emailing me in advance saying, you know, I'm, go- I'm going to be at the DDW. I hope you are too. Um, could we arrange to have coffee? And I think, um, you know, those are wonderful opportunities. You might even, if it's, if there is an in-person meeting, Make plans to join the Academy of Educators. It is a we we it was created really with an open model, so it is not a um, selective kind of restrictive organization, but really re- one that welcomes early educators. So join that. You know, talk to the folks who are there. They most always will share the same passion that you have for for teaching education, and then uh, you know visit some posters. Talk to the people at posters. Uh, you know, go up to somebody who gives a great presentation. Introduce yourself. These are great ways to kind of start. And like with anything, not every relationship will stick, you know, but if somebody doesn't have time for you, even after a meeting, that's not necessarily the person that you're going to find valuable as a mentor. So, right. I mean, you know, you want somebody who's going to be gracious and welcoming. Absolutely. I mean, not everyone should be paired up. It's, it's a little bit like, you know, speed dating, I think. Yeah. And then I would also say for folks who want to educate, remember, even though you may feel like you have a lot of synergy with, you know, the folks who are doing education, remember that it's, it is a 
the whole of your career and you need to have a clinical focus, a clinical niche, as well as loving and embracing education. The two can be very simpatico, can be very synergistic. You know, you can make it a win-win. You can, you know, amplify your, your education work by what you're doing clinically. But to say your only area of expertise is education, probably not, you know, enough as you're beginning a career now. Do you have advice for mentees that, you know, they may want to pursue a career in medical education, but then they also want to do research or basic science research, and they also want to do advanced, and they kind of seem like there's too many things that they're involved in, and they really need to kind of learn to narrow it down. How do they narrow it down? And I guess along the same lines, sometimes we are so enraptured with our mentors that we start to think that we want to do the things because our mentors are so passionate about that. For example, we have an awesome advanced endoscopy professor who's the chair of our department now. And he's just so excited about pancreatic stones that I started getting excited about it. And then I thought, do I really want to do this? But it was a, how do you, how do you kind of break away from that? I mean, don't you think that that's a real sort of liability that we feel, you know, we, we (laughs) have these very charismatic individuals and sometimes it's really hard to separate, you know, the, what they're doing from who they are. Right. and some of them, you know, in the strengths finders, there's, you know, one of the strengths, if you've ever done the strengths finders workshops and so forth, mm-hmm. one, one of the strengths is woo, meaning sort of that, that, you know, charisma, that ability to sort of draw people to your team. And I think that there are people certainly like that. And it is, it can be very um, sort of captivating to want to follow in their path. And, and so I do think we have, we have to just, you know, be personally a bit aware of that and recognize that who they are and what they do aren't, you know, necessarily the same thing. I will also say that you don't have to be unilateral. So you don't have to be only an educator. And I will say that I have people who have said to me, and when I was first asked about this, it felt a little bit um, uncomfortable, but they said, you know, I would like you to be my mentor. And I have like three others, (laughs) um, other aspects of my career. And when I first heard this, I kind of felt a little bit of fun. I was like, yeah, (laughs) I just, you know, in the line. but then I realized actually that was the very, very wise mentee, right? <laughs> Seeking a sort of counsel for the different aspects of their career. And that's a really appropriate thing to do. Now, I will also say that sometimes we, I mean, we've all, we've all seen this, but, you know, we see the medical student, for example, who goes through all the rotations and they're on surgery and they want to be a surgeon and yeah. then they want to be a physician. And you kind of wonder, do they really know, you know, have any idea about what they want to do? And I see the same thing with fellows. You know, we have, you know, I've seen fellows who uh, one day you talk with them, they're, they're doing liver, the next day they're doing IBD, and the next day, you know, it's pancreas. And, and I think that, you know, it is, you know, it's important as mentors to try to help individuals sort of seek their um, primary passion, not that they have to be unilateral. There's, there is plenty of room for a diverse, a, a diverse career. But on the other hand, if your career looks like brownie in motion, right, where you're <laughs> all over the place like the balls in the box randomly, then you're not going to get to where you're going. So I think it is important to have some goals and have some focus and then make, make your career thematic so that what you're doing actually is leading you somewhere and not just a random haphazard um, kind of walk in the park. So Nina, did you have brownie in motion on your bingo card for our conversation with Charles? <laughs> yes. That was I was definitely... thinking about brownies in motion. I got hungry, so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've seen people like that, right? Who just seem to yeah. bounce from, you know, 
And and I don't know if it's just because they they have this wonderful personality that just finds everything interesting. Um, but at the end of the day, they're they're in order to be successful, you know, you have to have some element of focus. That's a hard thing to do. It's it's hard to say to, goodbye to things that you're that you do love or you really enjoy. I'll speak for myself here. It is a challenge to realize that oh, I can't do that anymore. I really have to zone in a little bit more with my limited time. Yeah, I think one thing that's important is everything. So, so everybody has only twenty four hours in a day and only a single plate. And um, if you want to add something more to the plate, then you really kind of have to think about what is it that I'm less passionate about that that I could leave by the wayside in favor of this more interesting, more significant, you know, job role opportunity. So maybe that helps a little bit. I think it's uh, tough because when you're in training, there's a set trajectory. You know, I'm going to go to college, then I'm going to go to medical school, then I'm going to go to residency, and I'm going to go to fellowship. And all of a sudden, you're like, I'm going to go into a career. And that's so completely different. There's not a set syllabus of like, okay, we're going to cover X, Y, and Z, and you're out on your own, and you kind of have to figure it out. Yes, it's almost like um, the the sort of that twenty something is just delayed. You know, just gets kicked down the road, right? So instead of that, like, oh, now I've graduated from college and I have to figure out what to do with my life, which I would, which we see at that age. In medicine, it's kind of like delayed, and then we um, finish fellowship, and there isn't a lot of guidance necessarily to help us figure out kind of what to do. The one thing I will say is that there is more. Um, I think there's more mobility now than I've uh, ever seen in the past in terms of folks who decide to do something different along the, their career journey. They, there's more, don't you think, Matt, there's more like ability to transition from practice to academia or vice versa? I think people are more open to it for sure. And I think, you know, as you see practices kind of bought up by a lot of the large institutions, there are many pros and cons to that that we're not going to dive into here. But bringing those uh, clinicians back into the fold from an educator standpoint is wonderful for the trainees and the skill development they get from that community. I think that we're all more similar than we realize (laughs) because, um, you know, I I was actually thinking, you know, who do I educate? And, uh, and so there are formal roles. We actually happen to be in the midst of the GI block right now. So I can tell you I'm educating 200 medical students, (laughs) but there are also our other roles. I mean, every time I work with, you know, endoscopy nurses, right, who are asking me questions and so forth. So I think we educate, we educate, we educate a lot of people, right? So I think there, there's a lot of education that we do sort of incidentally. Yeah. So I think there is a lot of overlap. Do you think there are common attributes to educators? I don't know. I would say for the most part, I think I was sort of looking around at some of the educators that, uh, that I, you know, cross paths with on a daily basis. And I was reflecting on the fact that I guess if I had to draw some generalizations, I'd say they're by and large a a group that values like inclusivity and they're pretty much a a warm collaborative group. They realize that they're just kind of one piece of the universe and um, it would behoove them to work with the other pieces. So I think that that's a general um, common personality trait but I don't know. I mean, I think the educators are as diverse as any other, you know, niche in our careers, I guess. Do you think there are any, are there any unique qualities or? Nina, what do you think? I think that I mean, at least people who are involved in education are very passionate. 
They're very inclusive. You know, they want to make sure that this is touching you know, all sorts of, of people and all, all sorts of Thank different you for kinds of to learners. The AGA I think they are very in tune to, to reach us. Uh, you know, like please the email us at aga podcast uh, at gastro.org. They're visual, or follow us on Twitter kinesthetic. at MJ so Whitson MD. Uh, at Nina Nandy MD. I remember um, and being at CSC. And, you know, I, I podcast we took a class called Teaching with the Brain in Mind. And Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I went to Cornell, so it was in Ithaca, New York. And there's this alternate alternative school where they don't have grades and kids are super, super smart. And we just kind of spent a day observing them and seeing how they learn and, you know, who does what. And then we decided to teach them microbiology at a high school level. And we did like a kind of mystery microbe, figure out what it is. And they had to do like, you know, gram stains and different, <laughs> different things. And um, it was very cool. So I think that there's definitely a fun and, you know, passion to it and, and wanting to communicate openly. I think that's what I've gotten out of my educators who I love. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think you're both right. I think the only other things I'd add, maybe inclusivity. I love Cheryl, by the way. I, I think that's so true. Um, and I think that as we talk, as you talked about sidling up to someone, you weren't sure if, if, if they were important at the meeting and then ends up being the incoming president elect. I th- think that's hilarious because I think as an educators group, everyone is very inclusive. I think there's a component of empathy that's there. I think there's a component of patience for the most part uh, that's there. I think there's some there's some humor that's there as well because sometimes you're just banging your head against a wall and you have to be able to laugh at that moment. I, I think those are common threads I've seen, but maybe that's who I'm drawn to. I you know I'm not sure. I think that educators need to. So when you ask an educator, like, what's their biggest joy? They won't say something personal. They will deflect it to their learner. They will say, oh, you know, I had a learner who came back to see me and now wants to do GI. Or they'll say, I had, you know, a learner who um, I could see their eyes lit up and it was just this light bulb moment. And they were so enthusiastic, they couldn't stop talking. You know, they will say, you know, I was working with a fellow who got to the seek and was ecstatic, you know, and I <laughs> the scope, you know, they will, they will deflect it onto the successes of their learners. And that's what fills the well of many educators is that, you know, joy of being, doing something bigger than themselves. I love that. I think, you know, I think that's one of the last things that we should end on today because that's wonderful advice. One of the things that we ask everyone as we're kind of winding down that I'm curious about in your career, which is, I'm going to say this word and you're going to laugh at me, a very successful career. I know, I know you're shaking your head. No one can see it because it's a podcast, but I can see it. (laughs) What is the best advice you got that really stuck with you and helped you to succeed? Ah, wow. I'd say a couple things. One is to sort of be be confident in 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 yourself, right? I mean, it's to know where you want to go. And I mean, sometimes when you uh, strike out on a path of, of being an educator, you may not have all the encouragement as as you would if you were, you know, I don't developing a new clinical program or something. So I think be confident in uh, where you want to go and know that you have it within yourself to succeed. And the other thing I'll say, and I will say this from like very recent personal experience as I'm currently a student as well, it's never stop being a learner yourself. Yeah. It makes you a better teacher. It keeps you in touch with your own learners. And plus, it's just plain fun. So those would be, those would be a couple of things I guess I'd end on. 
So along those lines, if you have a trainee who is really looking for a career in medical education, do they need any extra sort of training? Do they need another degree? Do they need, you know, a master's in education? I know a lot of people must be asking about that. Yeah. So these degrees and these master's degrees in health professions education, education of different, you know, they're really becoming more prevalent now. And in fact, a lot of programs are almost exclusively or exclusively online. So they're more accessible. And so the question is always, do you need it to be an Mm -hmm. educator? And I think what happens is a lot of the um, early career faculty will look to more senior people and say, well, they don't have one and look where they Mm -hmm. are. But I will also say that if you're just at the entry point of your career and want to be an educator, I do think it's something that if nothing else, it shows your dedication to education. It says, you know, you're you're willing to really do the work of exploring the theory and methods behind what we do and why we do it and so forth. So I think it's it's good. What I say is most programs will. So if you're already at a university, um, many universities actually have these programs that are very accessible mm-hmm. and often have, you know, a, a tuition waiver or offset. And many times you can take a course and kind of, you know, try it out and see whether it's for you before you decide whether or not to enter a full program. Sometimes you can take even more than one course and then roll it into a program if you decide you want to actually apply to the to the degree program. So I um, can tell you a little bit from personal experience that I don't have a master's degree in an education field, but it is something that I'm surprisingly working towards. And that's because I was asked to teach a course in our master's program. And I realized that I didn't have a lot of, you know, really credibility to do so, having not taken an online course myself and not having been a student for a lot of years. And so although I had a lot of knowledge about the, the content, um, it was a course on teaching with simulation, I didn't really have much knowledge as to like where the students were coming from. And so I decided to embark on some courses myself. And I think it's been a really good experience and um, I'm enjoying it and uh postponing that big thing with a capital T called thesis. Um, <laughs> but it's been a good run up until this point. Um, I don't think, uh, you know, I don't think I'll be able to escape without doing the thesis. But but no, I think that I think the, these these degrees do bring value. I think uh, they certainly they certainly are a mark of an individual's dedication towards being an educator. And I don't think it's all or none. I think you can you can try it out and see and you never lose the fact that if nothing else, you know, you took a course with a number on it in an education field. And if nothing else, that that's certainly CV worthy. I think that's really good advice because I think a lot of people don't realize you can just kind of try something and you don't have to commit necessarily down that pathway. It's not an all or nothing like an action potential. And that, you know, different programs are different. So there may be some that do require you to, you know, jump fully in and commit before you're able to sample any of the content. But I know that there are others that actually have a more open approach. So Cheryl, let me ask you a question. So obviously, as you and I have discussed offline, like I did my master's in medical education, right, earlier on, and maybe I fall into that group where hopefully it transpo- we, we feel we need it for the future. So let's say someone's goals is just to become a better educator. What if you're the clinician that just wants to learn how to teach more effectively, wants to learn how to give feedback more effectively? What resources are out there now for those medical educators who are not looking for to be a dean down the road or to be the head of simulation, which I feel like is the biggest bucket of educators in GI? Um, yeah. So there are 
there are lots of uh, resources. So it might just be attending an education focused like conference session, lecture, right? That are like literally they sprout up everywhere. There, if you want to do a little bit more, there are like short courses mm-hmm. um, teaching, you know, where you might just go for a couple of days. If you want to do a little more than that, there are sometimes some certificate programs, which are, you know, something less than a master's degree, usually maybe a one-year commitment, but yet you still have something tangible to, to, you know, take away from that. So there's lots of ways that you can do less. And I mean, I even think there's a lot of self-education to be had, right? So, you know, or go to the DDW, attend the Academy of Educators Plenary. You'll, you'll hear a ton of really practical, useful information for the, you know, for the in-the-trenches clinical educator, so which is what the majority of folks are, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's day-to-day. I mean, I think, the vast majority of us that work with any trainees or any students along the way are educators from the moment we walk into that hospital, to that university, to that office setting, to the moment we walk out. So any day-by-day tricks and improvements is always welcomed. Yes. And I mean, I'll say, you know, it, it, as you know, it's, oh my goodness, I think it's it's a constant learning. I mean, it's constant learning. I I see folks who do things and I think, oh, wow, I wish I would have thought of that. <laughs> it's a wonderful technique. And I also still, you know, step off the curb and, you know, unknowingly and, and do things that I think, oh, gosh, you know, why did I do that? <laughs> I just embarrassed that, you know, poor student who's all vulnerable. <laughs> so, you know, we all are continually learning, I guess. So. Last but not least, where can people find you online, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram? Maybe not TikTok anymore, but anything <laughs> else they can reach out to you about? Oh, I'm such a Luddite. Maybe um, <laughs> email? <laughs> we have singing telegrams and <laughs> um, Pony Express. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that I've been slow to embrace some of the social media. Sorry, but I'm I'm certainly very reachable, and you know, certainly wel- I welcome I welcome questions and be happy to whatever, be happy to share whatever I do or don't know. Well, thank you so much for meeting with us and speaking with us about your career. It was wonderful. It was a pleasure. It was a lot of fun. A lot of fun to talk to both of you. Thanks. Oh, thanks, Cheryl. Thank you for listening to the AGA podcast. To reach us, please email us at agapodcast at gastro.org or follow us on Twitter at MJWitsonMD, at NinaNandyMD, and at CSCMD. Podcast production done by Resonant Recordings. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening and have a good one.